Luke chapter 8, verse 16, is kind of these two, like it's the beginning of kind of these two sections that are like are a little bit strange. If you've been a Christian for any sort of time, you probably think about them um, as kind of like two independent sections that, um, you know, have other information kind of uh, filling them out from the other Gospels, and to a certain extent that's true, to a certain extent that those things uh, do exist, Um, but we have to remember what is going on in this passage. Luke isn't, again, just giving us a random spot, much like he did earlier um, in when he describes uh, the parable of the sower with Jesus. He doesn't just simply bring us to a place where he's like, okay, let me tell you some Uh, give you some great lessons about how to uh, tend a field and to plant a garden. That's not really the goal of what he's getting at here. These two uh, uh, little stories exist within a broader context. Now, I will remind you of the point, the uh, intent of Luke's authorship here. He has been commissioned by this guy, Theophilus. We don't know much about Theophilus. You know, he could have been someone who was a a bit of an aristocrat. Perhaps he was somebody who uh, commissioned this work to have Luke uh, compile this together for him. But the, the opening words of the Gospel of Luke tell us that Luke writes for this man. Uh, we, we read this. In verse 3 of chapter 1, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. So Luke opens the book telling us, I've been there. I've done the eyewitness thing. I've interviewed people. I'm a great historian. Uh, Luke's profession is one of a physician. He's a, he's a doctor, and so that attention to detail is important to him. Knowing what's happening is important. And so he says, you know, I've been paying attention to these things. I've been taking notes. I've been interviewing people. I'm pulling all of this together, and I'm going to record it all for you, Theophilus. I'm going to put it together into an orderly account. Now, why does he do this? We're told in chapter 1, verse 4, so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That you might have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. Now, I love this because this is a, a common admission uh, that, you know, we, that, that it, it's, it exists in our hearts, that we're like, I'm not really sure about this whole Jesus thing. I'm not really sure about the church thing. I'm not really sure about what's actually happening here. But but what Luke says here is that I'm going to bring these things together to remind you. Because we need to be reminded, as God's people, we need to be reminded of the truth that exists here. I'm going to bring these things together for you. These are confessions that often exist in our heart that we're not sure about this. We're not really sure how this is going to go. But the, but the best way that we can deal with these things is to express that. Perhaps Luke uh, was listening there to Theophilus, and Theophilus is saying, you know, I'm not really sure about this. I'm, you know, Jesus could be cool, but I'm not, like, exactly sure if I'm going to, like, kind of keep going, if I'm down with him. We don't really have all the background to that. But Luke says, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull it all together for you. So you can have some insight. You can have some direction. You can have some understanding as to what's going on. One of the best things that you can do as a a person who is a disciple, 
who is trying to learn what it is to walk after Jesus, is you can be honest with yourself. That you can say, I'm not really sure about this Jesus guy. I'm not really sure there. And in our culture uh, that we live in, everybody's trying to have their own take about Jesus. You know, here's who, I, here's who he says he is. He's a great moral teacher. He's got some cool stuff. You know, he's got a couple great stories. He's kind of on the uh, same level as some modern, uh, or not uh, modern, some ancient philosophers. He's got, you know, he can do some cool things, but like that's, that's about it. But Luke says, I'm going to pull this together so that you can have certainty. You can know for sure what the real deal is. And the idea is this, that as he brings this together, you will understand, you will see that your questions that you have are answered. The life of someone who is a disciple of Christ is not one of asking no questions, but of asking many questions and trusting that the scriptures bring authoritative, truthful answers to that question that you have. We welcome all questions because the Bible has answers for our lives that gives us insight and wisdom. Jesus is there willing to reveal himself to those who would ask, those who would ask that question. And isn't that what we've seen thus far, even as we looked at the parable of the sower in the previous chapter? In Luke chapter 8, we find that there is Jesus there with a group of people, and he's explaining to them this story. There's a great gathering. They're all there ready to hear him. And he begins telling this story about plowing, about planting seeds in a field. A sower went out to sow and he threw seeds. And some of the seeds fell into, uh, on the path and they were eaten up. Some of the seeds fell into the rocky uh, space where it, 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 the, the seed took root and it went down a little bit, but then it withered and died because it didn't have moisture. There was another seed that was thrown into the field and there were thorns next to it and the thorns ended up taking all the nutrients away and it didn't have anything left to live. And then finally, the fourth soil is one that comes into good nutrient-rich soil that allows it to, to um, prosper and it bears fruit. And Jesus says this in a group of people who were there who are listening to him, his disciples, a bunch of random people who are there, who've been kind of trekking around with him, trying to be like, what's this guy all about? And he's there to share this story. Now, those who are truly interested are going to say, what the heck is Jesus talking about? Because this guy sounds like a crazy guy. They have that thought in their hearts, perhaps. But then the ones who want to actually know that answer, they ask that of Jesus. They say, what's the deal? Why are you talking about this? Because you haven't spoken anything about this before. You've not discussed this. What's happening? Why are you even like talking about like these, like throwing seeds and like, this is like really stupid sounding. Like we're all farmers. We know how it works. Like, what's the deal? But then there are those who just hear him and they're like, nah, whatever, I'm out of here. Like, I don't, I, like, I know, I already know how to, like, deal with, like, agricultural stuff. I have a farm. Peace out. This was my, this was a waste of time for me. But then you find that, that those who, who actually persist, those who say, this, Jesus guy, I'm not really sure about him. Let me ask him. They get the answer. And Jesus unpacks the parable for them. He says, here's what it is. Here's what, here's what the, the seed is. It's representative of the word of God that lands upon the hearts uh, of men. It lands some upon just the packed uh, path. And that, that um, soil there that 
that, that is there is not uh, loose enough to receive that seed, and so it never really does anything. And, and the, the, the birds come and take it, Satan kind of sweeps it away. There's another one that falls into the rocky soil, and it has a short root, but it doesn't go down deep enough to get moisture, and so it withers away in the time of difficulty and hardship. When things aren't going the way that you want, when you're like, this is not how I wanted my life to go, God's not giving me the things that I wanted, that's when you're like, I'm out. Then there's the one that grows up in the thorns and thistles. It's planted in a reasonable ground, Jesus says. And that one is representative of somebody who has the perspective, the insight of like, I, I'm doing this thing, I'm, go, I'm growing up in some nutrient-rich ground, and then you're looking around at like other people in this life who are not Christians, and you're saying like, well, I want that, and I want that, and I want that, and why isn't God giving me all of those things? And as we said on, on uh, last Sunday, that attitude of uh, desiring those other things is the same type of thing, that the same type of attack that uh, Satan brings in Genesis chapter 3, where God's like, I've given you this entire garden. I've given you the entire garden of Eden. It's going to be amazing. You can eat all the fruits of the garden except for like this one. And then Satan like, you know, kind of scurries all up and he's like, well, didn't God tell you? Like he tries to like, to, to basically say, like, God doesn't love you, and he's not giving you any good things. He's not, he's not wanting to give you the things that you want. Sure, he said you can have every other tree, but you just can't have this one thing. Like, sure, he, yeah, he's really just taking it to you, not giving you anything that you want. Doubting, uh, well, like, causing you to doubt God's goodness, trying to bring these lies into you to say, did God really say that? You could probably have it. You can probably pursue this. You can probably take it. These are all things that uh, the, the heart of, uh, of somebody who is growing up in the thorns and the thistles, this is the, the, the type of attitude that that person has. And then finally, you have the one who just grows up into the good soil that finds nutrient rich that lets its root go deep, and it is connected to a true source of life. Now, as Jesus is saying these things, of course, there are many hearers. There are people who are listening to it. And as we spoke about this last week, we also hear uh, this is a kind of a parable within a parable as it applies to us. How well do we actually hear? How willing are we to listen? What type of soil will we be? How will we interact? So as we come into the text this morning, we hold in one hand the fact that, uh, that Luke is welcoming the doubts the questions of Theophilus. Bring your difficult questions. It doesn't have to make sense. Go ahead, Theophilus, throw all the things out there that you want me to research. Perfect. Luke's like, I'll go get the answers. The Bible has answers. Jesus has answers. He will meet you in your questions. No problem. Then we have Jesus uh, unpacking the parable of the sower, saying it's important for how to be someone who is receiving, who is listening well who is hearing his, the words that he is sharing. Remember, he uses these words. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you want to hear, if you want to know, if you want to uh, pursue Christ, listen, and you will indeed receive what he intends for you to have. If you're going to fake it, you're never going to get what you're actually pretending to pursue. Because God's not going to give it to you as a fake thing, like, oh, you, weren't, you didn't really care. He's going to give you exactly what you need when you need it. So these are the things that we hold in tension as we come to our text this morning. These are the things that we are aware of as we look at our text. Because this is not the same as probably the, the familiar things that we often uh, think of when we come to these texts. 
especially at the beginning of, of uh, this section in verse 16, these are two examples of how we ought to listen, how we ought to respond to Jesus. This is about our response, not about us necessarily uh, speaking as Jesus spoke. How well do you hear? How well do you listen? How much do you want to know? Or are you just pretending? Or are you just faking it? Jesus puts it this way in verse 16. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Now, of course, here, uh, this is kind of a reference to the culture, the, uh, the practices at that time. This would either be a, uh, a long candlestick uh, in a stand, or this would be a type of oil-burning lamp. And this would, uh, that would kind of be out in the open uh, without a shade, without a cover on it. This would be something that would uh, be a primary light to illuminate a space. And he says here that there is a purpose, a reason for this light. So that those who enter may see the light. So that those who enter the room, as you come in, you will see what's happening. You will be aware of every obstacle, every hindrance. That you will see that there is nobody in the room who is intending you harm. That there is nothing there that is going to uh, uh, come after you or blindside you or give you anxieties or worries or fears. The light illuminates in such a way that it brings safety and security to those who enter into that room. It gives you insight and wisdom. The purpose of the light is to, is to illuminate. It is not about concealing, but about revealing. What is there? What can be seen? What can be witnessed? Remember, he's been teaching his disciples, not just the 12 apostles, but all who follow him. He's been teaching us the principles of the kingdom of God. What does it actually mean to be a Christian? What does it actually mean? He is in the process of teaching them. In effect, he's lighting that lamp. And what do you do with that lamp? Well, he says some disciples are tempted to put it under a bed, to hide it away. Some are, are, are tempted to cover it up, to lessen it so it's not as bright. When you do that, it begins to, to remove oxygen from that space. It begins to snuff it out. Jesus, in the text, likens himself here to a man has, who has lit a lamp, who has created this vessel, and put it on a lampstand for all to see. His word is uh, being emphasized in this fashion. Now, by contrast, and maybe sitting in the back of some of your minds, is the passage that uh, may be familiar to you in the Gospel of Matthew, right? Where this, there's this whole idea of, uh, you know, letting your light shine before people and, uh, you know, a city on a hill cannot be hidden and you've got to shine bright in the world and kind of this whole, like, lighting scheme that's connected there. 
uh, Jesus speaks many times about uh, being the uh, about having a lamp in the 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 lampstand. You'll see it pop up again in the Gospel of Luke as we move again. He'll say almost the exact phrasing again. But here in our text, this is not about a missionary endeavor. This is not about us having the light and living it out in such a world and nobody dampening our witness and seeing that. This is about how well do you hear. This is not about. Oh, like, well, you know, I've got to, like, let my little light shine in the world and make sure that everybody knows whatever, wherever I'm at, that I'm a Christian. That's not what this is about. Okay? This is about uh, letting the light of Christ illuminate your own life. How well do you listen? In the Old Testament, a lamp is a metaphor for several things. Number one it is a metaphor for God himself. Number two, it is a metaphor used of the Davidic Messiah, the promised Messiah, the one who would be sent by God. And then number three, the lamp is often used as a metaphor for the, uh, for the word of God. You see uh, God himself described as a lamp. In 2 Samuel 22, verse 29, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God, my God lightens my darkness. You find this confession happening there. You see uh, the Davidic Messiah spoken of in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 19, Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. For the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. In Psalm 132, verse 17, you see the psalmist write this, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. And then finally, you see, of course, the many uh, metaphors for this being the word of God, but probably the most famous in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So you have this kind of intersection of all three things, God, the Davidic Messiah, and the word of God. The imagery all points to Jesus as the metaphor because he is God, he is the Davidic Messiah, and he is the word of God. He gets all three. It's a jackpot. Consider the words that open the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the, begin he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. So you see here in the text, he is the word, he is God, he is the light, he is the lamp. He's all of these things existing. And so you see Jesus open this uh, next section in John chapter 8, verse 16, speaking of a lamp and a lampstand. He's speaking here of himself. This isn't about you, it's him. How are you going to handle him? What are you going to do with him? He is the lamp on the lampstand. The lamp on the lampstand is the primary source of illumination in a room. 
The other places where lamps would be placed would be on uh, lower tables that would be scattered in corners of rooms to illuminate corners. But there was nothing that was placed higher than the lamp on the lampstand. This tells us that Jesus is the primary authority, that he is not subordinate to anything, that he is the one by which we should see all other things. He is the one who illuminates all other things. He is supreme over all in the light by which we are to see all things. He is meant to give light, to illuminate, to help us see, to reveal, not to conceal, not to hide. And so God's purpose in the work of Jesus is to bring light, to reveal. And so when you have questions, when you have doubts, when you have concerns, you ought to go to Jesus who will reveal, who will illuminate, not say, well, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. Why don't you try it? Why don't you go to him? Why don't you say, this doesn't make any sense. Show me what's going on, Jesus. Your word says you will reveal. You say that you want me to know. I will seek you, and I want to hear from you. There's that honesty, that humility that it requires. You can't come with arrogance and pride because you're not going to get what you need. Jesus tells us in the parable of the sowers that the, the good soil, the one who actually gets what they need, is somebody who hears the word, verse 15 of chapter 8, hears the word, holds it fast in an honest, honest, honest and good heart. You've got to say, I'm going to be as real as possible here. I'm not going to be faking it like, oh, Jesus, I'm asking you for this because I know someone's going to ask me, did I pray about it? I'm asking you for this because, you know, I'm just trying to go through the motions. No, you've got to ask honestly. You've got to say, this doesn't make sense. I don't see a way. I don't see how this can happen. I don't see how this is going to to resolve that poverty of spirit is what is required. That humility that, that, that you have there in approaching when you're cornered is what is required. There's a passage in the Old Testament, I don't have time to unpack the whole story, so, but there's a passage in the Old Testament where the children of Israel, they're in real trouble. And one of the prophets knows that they're in real trouble. And he's like, we're pretty much going to die. And his prayer is this, Lord, there's no way, but our eyes are on you. Like, that's it. <laughs> Like, that's what he's got. He doesn't say, like, give me all the insight, show me what's happening. He just is just basically like, this is the end. I don't see how any of this is going to work out. But, like, do your thing if you're going to do your thing. That's it. Honest in prayer. He's not trying to play the game. He's not trying to make suggestions to God. Hey, God, here's my, like, pros and cons list that I've been working on for the last five days. It'd be really great if we could set up a time to go over it. I'll send you a Zoom link, and we can, you know, kind of go side to side, which one. And then at the end, maybe I'll, like, collect all those, and then we'll sit down, and, like, I'll chat it over with my family, and then we can, like, you know, do a little bit more research on that. And then I'll bring it back to you, and then you can really just kind of see. And then once I've really decided, I'm going to come there, and hopefully you're going to tell me about the one that I decided on. That's not how it works. He doesn't need you to do the research because he knows all the stuff. He doesn't need you to go find out all that information. You're not presenting things to him that he does not already know. Your job is to come and to say, you're God, I'm not. I want to go wherever you're going. Show me where you're going. And to remain ultimately flexible to hear what he wants you to hear. 
Jesus wants to engage. He wants to connect with us. He wants to work in our lives. He says we ought to be a people who hear and see the light of his message and respond to it. It illuminates every area, every aspect of our lives. His teaching, his message, his lordship is not something that should be relegated uh, only to specific areas of life or applied at our subjective discretion, but all who hear his word should respond to him. All who hear his word, who hear who he is, should respond to him. You better respond because he knows what's going on anyways. Look at verse 17. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest. So if you think you're like, oh, I'm not really going to share about that because, you know, it's kind of a secret. It's not a secret. He tells you. Nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So you're only deceiving yourself if you don't want to speak with Jesus about these things because he already knows anyways. This is about the posture of your heart. How do you want to receive him? He already knows. He wants you to come to him to develop a relationship with him. His teaching, his word, who he is, reveals hidden things and exposes secrets. And he says here that one day everything's going to be revealed. Everything will be known. As the truth is proclaimed, as it's preached, as he is exalted, as he is made known, everything will be illuminated. But we get to the most important section of this in verse 18. He says, take care then how you hear. Take care then how you hear. A warning. It's good to hear the word of God. It's good to receive. It's good to read the Bible. Take care how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. It's good to hear the word of God. It is better to be aware of how you are hearing the word of God. To be listening to respond, not just listening for comprehension. He's telling us, prepare the soil of your own heart. Be ready to receive from him. There are those who are, he says, in the world who are with him, who were with his people, and they think they're doing good. Oh, I'm showing up, I'm doing the thing, I'm going through the motions. He says, but those people, those people, if you're not taking heed in how you're hearing, even what you think you have will be taken away. But how does he really say it? He says, to the one who has not. He doesn't say that has I'm going to take away what you have. He says, you don't actually have it. You only think you have it. To the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Jesus is not actually taking anything away. You're just coming to the understanding that you never had it, and it's leaving your own perspective. Those who receive his word will receive that spiritual blessing, that they will be richly uh, enjoying him. But there are those who hear only at the surface level. The seed of the word of God is only scattered onto the, the top. And they're one of these other types of soils. It doesn't find root. It withers away. They're trying to use God to get things. He says, 
of course it's going to be taken away. There's no actual way for it to remain, for it to have a source of life, for it to bear fruit. Nothing was going to happen in the first place. It was only deception, self-deceived. But God knows. He sees. Nothing is in secret. And then we kind of get like this weird story that happens immediately after this, right? It's a much longer story um, in the Gospel of Mark. It actually spans a huge portion of the Gospel of Mark uh, because it starts off with Jesus' family, and then it goes to like this whole interaction with the Pharisees, and then it ends with Jesus' family. But Mark just swats like most of that down, or I mean Luke just swats most of that down. He's like, not relevant, not relevant, not relevant, not relevant for my point. Mark's making a different point. Luke is making a different point here. And Luke wants you to see simply this. It's important how you respond to Jesus. So he's told us, my word is the, is the lamp. Those people who think that they're in, those people who, uh, who need to take care how they hear, for the one who has more will be given. The one who has not, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. He says, don't be self-deceived. Don't think that you have rights to me, that you have connections to me, just based on what you believe that you have, based on your own self-deception. You know in your heart of hearts if you really want to know God. You know in your heart of hearts if you really want to hear from him. You know in your heart of hearts if you're just being prideful, if you're trying to have a, 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 a certain appearance, a spiritual appearance before others, or if it's like real. You know. You might be able to deceive everybody else, but you can't deceive God. He knows. And he's the only one that matters, because he's God. We're not going for each other's approvals. We're going to be connected to Jesus, to know him. And so he says here, here's a story now of Jesus' own family. Verse 19, then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. So we don't get any insight. We don't get any wisdom from Luke here. Why are they here? What's going on? We just, all Luke tells us is his parents or his, his mom and his brothers are here. And they're like, hey, Jesus, we're here. They're trying to get his attention, but there's a great crowd. Now, during Jesus's ministry, you'll see that his brothers, they don't believe that he is this promised Messiah. They're like, this is our crazy brother. That's basically the approach. Jesus is kind of like this weird nutso that's like our stepbrother. Like, and he's always out. He like won't stay at home. He's always on the road. John chapter 7 verse 5 tells us, not even his brothers believed in him. They reject him. And so they're there with mom. Hey, Jesus, we're here. The crowd's there. Jesus isn't hearing them. Verse 20, and he was told, so they send messages up to him. Your mother and brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. They can't get to him, so they send a message. Now, if you've ever been, like, like seen any sort of, like, documentary or any sort of, like, uh, behind the scenes on like any sort of like celebrity or rock star there's always in one of them there's always like you know some friend or family where like you know their 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 family's trying to come visit the celebrity and the the the, 
the rock star, the celebrity is always like, yeah, I'm gonna leave tickets for you at will call. You can go around the back door. You got the secret access, you know, you hang out in my trailer beforehand. There's always some sort of way where like those people have a way to like put tickets for their friends or family to get access that nobody else has access to. That's not even the case here. There's no way. The people come, everybody knows this is Jesus's like mom and brothers, and like they don't have special access. They don't have a way to get to Jesus. They don't have a back door through the crowd. They don't know how to get in there. There's no access to them, and Jesus isn't particularly concerned about that. He's not making a special way for them to get to him. And so the word comes to him like, hey, uh, your family's here. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't go to the family. Prototypical Jesus. Jesus, here's some info. Uh, you might want to, like, go out and see them. You might want to, like, tell everybody, like, hey, make room so they can come in. Like, maybe something. Just totally ignores all of that. Thanks for the info. Appreciate it. It's the same approach that when uh, he is told, hey, your friend Lazarus is dying. He's like, okay, thanks. And you're like, uh, that was, you're supposed to do something about that. We wanted you to do something about that. We're, you know, like, maybe you're going to be like, let's leave right now. We've got to deal with this. You see, for Jesus, he's got his own priorities. He's got his own thing going. He's trying to always do something that we're not trying to do. What we would do would be outraged. If you're the mom, you're like, what's wrong, Jesus? Like, how you want to like, let me in here? If you're the brother's like, oh my gosh, this guy's like embarrassing us. Like, all this is happening. If you're the other people in, who are in the room there and you're seeing this and you're like, this is super awkward. Like, why will Jesus not, like, not do the like, expect, expected thing? Like, he's supposed to kind of take care of his, like, mom. Uh, you know, many people believe that at this point, his, uh, Joseph is, is dead. So, like, he would have been the oldest who would have been taking care of his mom, and he's just not there doing that. So it would have been like, why is Jesus, like, not taking care of his family? Like, what's happening? All these super awkward things happening in this moment. And Jesus just, he's not going to go to our expectations. Whatever would be commonly approved in society, he's like, nah. I'm not living to your approval. I'm not going where you think I should go. Instead, he uses this opportunity to teach about his mission. He uses this opportunity to indicate who is important to him. Who is special to Jesus? Who would be more special than your family? Well, Jesus says, Now that we're speaking about uh, hearing and receiving the word of God, let me tell you about this. They say, your mother and brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. They want to see you. They're here. Your blood family, your relations, they're here. And Jesus answers verse 21 with this. My mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. He doesn't go out to them. He makes a simple statement. Who is important to Jesus? Who is special to Jesus? Who does he consider to be as close as family? Those who do the word of God. Those who receive what he's saying and they do it. It illustrates for all who were there how important it is that you receive the word of Jesus. He says it's more important than than my blood family. How you're connected to me spiritually is more important. Those who receive my word, who obey it, who follow 
my direction. They are more important than my physical relatives. Jesus' own family are those who receive the word of God, who listen, who apply it, who obey it. It's important to catch that. You have to listen, apply, obey, receive. You, careful how you listen. Careful how you, uh, uh, how you heed his word. I'll tell you this. He is not looking for an intellectual engagement with his word primarily. This is not about comprehension and understanding. Jesus is not looking for scholars. He's looking for servants. Right? He doesn't go out and pull all the scribes who have the most advanced knowledge about the Old Testament. He's like, okay, like, let me get like, all the base-level fishermen lined up. You seem like you're a pretty like, terrible like, cheater and you know, a thief. You're going to betray me in a little bit. Like, these guys, like, no, nobody here is like, pretty super well-formed. Like, let's pull all those guys into a bunch. Like, this is what happens. Let's loop in the terrorist. We got that guy. Like, he's got like, this random group of people because he doesn't care about scholarship. It's not about purely academics. It's about application. If you have the head knowledge, but you do not have the heart knowledge, you have no knowledge. You're no better than the Pharisees, who know the word of God, but their hearts are far from him. It's not about mastery of the knowledge. It's about application. This is why uh, Jesus uses the example of the woman who gives all that she has, her, 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 her two mites in her tithe to the temple. And then there's like a Pharisee who basically is backing up like a dump truck and blowing trumpets, and he's got a dump truck of money, and he's just like, and it's like putting it in there, and he's got like a parade around him, and he's like, look how much money I'm giving. He's like, okay, like you totally missed the boat. It's like, it's not, a, it's not about that. It's about this woman just secretly trying to put in her like two little thing. Like there wasn't even uh, enough money to put in for anybody to gather around it. Like went in, it went in there so quickly. They didn't even get to see it. It was so little. Jesus, that's, that is the prototype of faith. That's what I'm after. That little, little tiny bit with the right heart. Not about the mass. Not about the excellence of uh, this huge parade and demonstration. It's not about being intellectual. It's not about knowing the, more, the most scriptures and being able to cross-reference that, you know, or like it's not about like, you know, uh, any of those things. I mean, almost all of you know how I have like this like ridiculous spiderweb mind of like things that are like randomly connected, useless if I don't live it out. Stupid, waste of time, and sinful to have that without application. If I can't figure out what to do with it, I don't know how to, to apply that in my own life, all that is, is, is pride. Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians that love edifies, but knowledge puffs up. If you have knowledge, but you don't have love, you're nothing. You need the love, and the love only comes from God. You can only get that love from God by knowing God. So, that knowledge is useless if you're going to be apart from God. This isn't about being smart. This isn't about being able to process quickly. It's about humility. It's about receiving his word with gladness. Luke has spoken to this previously. About hearing, heeding the word, following through. 
In Luke chapter 6, verse 47, everyone who comes to me, Jesus' own words, everyone who comes to me and hears my words uh, and does them, I will show you what he is like, right? Who comes to me, who hears my words and does them. You go to Jesus, he's the only one that can give them. You hear his words and then you put it into action. That's what he's asking us to do here. To receive, to be hearers of his word. He says, I will show you what it was like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the, spring, the, uh, the stream broke against that house and could not shake because it had been well built. Right? So what is that prototy- uh, prototypically describing? It's describing the, uh, the, the seed that was planted in the shallow soil. It doesn't, uh, it, it, it's able to withstand that because it's not built on the shallow there. It goes into a deeper section. It's not withering away in the times of trouble and tribulation like a house that's built on, uh, on a shallow or a, uh, just a soil foundation. It's one that is built into uh, a deeper depth. It is connected to the true source of life. It is able to withstand trials and difficulties. He says, if you hear my words and do them, you will have a firm foundation. James chapter 1, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. There it is, the prototypical description of what Jesus is laying out here. Those who hear the word but don't do it deceive themselves. Who you hear the word, you don't apply it, you don't put it into practice in your life, you deceive yourself. You think you have more than you actually have, and then it's taken away. All of a sudden you find out that you do not have he continues in James chapter 1, verse 25, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer uh, but forgets, who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He says, if you are a hearer and a doer, if you hear the word and you do, you act, you're going to be blessed in your doing. It requires a real relationship with God, a connection to him. One that does not apply on, uh, not apply, does not rely on uh, physical blood relationship ties, but one that is connected to obedience, to his own word. You've got to encounter the words of Christ. You've got to see his work. And when he demonstrates who he is, then it calls us to respond to him in gladness, in repentance, in thanksgiving. Uh, We find that in the text, uh, this word goes out, and his brothers and his mother are there, and they do not receive him in this state. They're not there to be examples of faith, but rather they are there to be uh, a foil to what it means to actually be someone who is placing faith in Christ. It's greater than blood relationship. It's obedience. But we do see that when Jesus' own brothers, when his mother is there and sees him at the cross, recognizes he is the Son of God, when she sees the risen Lord, when they encounter the risen Lord, they come to faith. He is who he said he is. 
They respond to who he is. After the resurrection, after Jesus ascends back to the Father, we read these words in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with, here we go, the women, right? Uh, we have the beginning of chapter 8 of Luke, the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, now we're down in verse 19, and his brothers. So we got the disciples, the women, Mary, and his brothers. They're all there. They make the journey. They make the trek. They see the risen Christ is who he says he is. On the other end, they believe, they trust in him, they receive his word, and they respond. And as we catch a glimpse of the risen Christ, as we see him uh, alive leading his church, we have that same responsibility to respond to the call. We have that same responsibility to say, I want you to take hold of my life, to lead me, and to guide me. You are who you said you are. You are God who has dwelt among us, who has lived in our midst who has kept the law perfectly on our behalf, who paid for our sin at the cross and has been resurrected by the Father for our justification and is coming again. We rejoice in this. We respond to this. We don't want it to just be intellectual. We don't want it to be scholarly or academic. We don't just want to know about God. We want to actually know God. And so it calls us now to respond. How will we handle the lamp? How will we handle the lampstand? We've got to let it uh, be lifted high to illuminate the room, to be the primary source of light in every area, every aspect of our lives so that we might see rightly, we might be protected, we might have safety and security, and that we might see any obstacle, that we might be able to navigate any hindrance in our way. It can only be done through his work. And let's respond to him now. Lord, we are grateful for the truth of the gospel. We're grateful that you have given us new life. We're grateful that we can trust you. And we ask that you would work in our hearts now by the power of your Holy Spirit. That you would stir up within us a new desire to obey you. That you would stir up within us this uh, desire uh, that is... Uh, initiated by your Holy Spirit working within us, that you would convict us of sin, that you would call us to repentance, that you would ask us to step out in faith and to trust you over our own thoughts, over our own desires, over our own uh, um, wants, because we know that you're good and you have our best interest in mind and we rejoice in you. Lord, we ask that you would make us aware of the attacks of the enemy, of that voice that would come and call us to doubt who you are. Did God really say, yes, you said. You tell us in your word. You show us at the cross. Give us a spirit of humility. We don't need to be 
arrogant or prideful. Everybody here knows that everybody here is a sinner and in need of you. No one's pretending. We are all desperate for your forgiveness. We're all desperate for your blood to cover us. We're thankful that you have and that you call us to walk with you. And so, Lord, we cast off those uh, old works, that old life. We want to pursue you wholeheartedly and faithfully. Lead us now as we respond in worship. We love you. Amen.